The European Patent Office podcasts bring you an insight into the technology and innovation shaping the world. Hello and welcome to the European Patent Bar, a podcast from the European Patent Office. Today we will be discussing the new edition of the EPO's examination guidelines, both for the EPC and the PCT-EPC procedure. These will come into force on the 1st of March and are open to consultation until Easter. My name is Jordi Cox and I'm an associate partner at EPC in Amsterdam. Joining me for an afterwork chat are two experienced patent attorneys. All three of us sit on the Working Party on Guidelines, which is a subgroup of the Standing Advisory Committee before the EPO. Firstly, from PV in Hellerup, on the edge of Copenhagen, we have senior European patent attorney Annette Heckner. Hello, Annette. Hello, Jody. Thanks for inviting me. Good to be here. Also joining us at the bar is Heiko Sendrowski, senior counsel at the German chemicals multinational BASF in Ludwigshaven am Rhein. Welcome, Heiko. Hello, Jordi. Hello, Annette. Good to see you both again. I must say, this chat rather feels like we are marking our own homework. We have argued and debated how to improve the guidelines over the last year. And now we get to discuss what we think could still be clarified or amended. So let's get started. If we look at the guidelines, we can see it has really grown over the years. It used to be much smaller. Adjacents were only made every few years, not annual. Do you agree, Annette? Oh, yeah, sure. I remember when I could have it in my hand easily like, like that. Now uh, it's so heavily that you need to search on the net because otherwise you cannot find round in it. And it's growing each year. That is exactly the case. I remember when I was using the guidelines for my EQE, it was only a small booklet and I could even use loose leaf compilations. But now I prefer to use the PDF version where I can search electronically. Sure. And, and I think that it's becoming more and more important from practitioner to know the guideline and to follow the guideline. It's not sufficient to just follow case law. Definitely. I see in uh, proceedings, for example, before the opposition division, you see it's much more useful to use the guidelines instead of case law because the guidelines are a clear instruction from the EPO to the examiners. And case law, you always have, uh, does it apply? Is this a similar case? Does it apply to our case? The guidelines really has an added value for examination and opposition uh, procedures. And I must admit, you all say the book of the guidelines is much thicker now. And I've been wondering how many years ago it was was the last time I saw a printed version. I'm a little of the old school, so I have a printed version each year where I put all my notes on. <laughs> but when I work with it, I use it online. Perfect. Well, I think we all agree that the guidelines are very useful. And personally, I use it very frequently. What wonders me is that it kind of odd that we have been receiving relatively low levels of feedback on the online consultation. What's your view on that, Aiko? I see that in the statistics, we had 150 comments from the online consultation from all parts of the profession. But this year, we only had a few of them. And also the PCT guidelines, they have not attracted that much public attention. I wonder why, because as you said, the guidelines are a very comprehensive tome, <laughs> I must say now, and it has advice for nearly all kinds of issues that you may encounter, even, even practical advice when it comes to, in my profession, for example, biotechnology, what to do and how to phrase and 
what the examiner is probably looking into. So I would have expected that the professionals would be more interested in helping to further develop the guidelines because certainly there are some issues that still need amendments. I think that one of the reasons why there are so relatively few comments actually is that it is so comprehensive because it takes a lot of time to go through uh, the various parts of the guidelines. Uh, and uh, then if you have a window of one month to do it, it's very difficult to to get time to do that. You need to see these things when you have an actual case. I think we have to discuss with the, the EPO how we can increase the period or, or have a broader period of time to file uh, comments. If we see a, the annual revision cycle at this moment, so as as I said before, from February until mid-April every year, there's an online user consultation. Then in May, we as a CAPO me- uh, members have our first CAPO meeting to discuss the consultation feedback. After that, the EPO obviously needs time to draft all the updates on, uh, to the guidelines. And at the end of July, we as the CAPO members received the draft guidelines to review all the changes and provide further comments. In October, there's a second CAPO meeting to discuss our comments, after which the EPO finalizes the new guidelines, which are then pre-published in February. So as Heiko mentioned, there will be cut-off dates because the EPO, of course, cannot continuously absorb and, and, and process new comments. But I think it's wise that we discuss with the EPO to give the users more opportunities to file comments with respect to the guidelines. And this year was a quite different year than than normally because this year there was much discussion about the adaptation of the description and the EPO organized in November a workshop around this hot topic with uh, SACAPO members, national judges from the UK, the Netherlands and Germany and Board of Appeal members. How did you experience this, Annette? Oh, well, I think that it's very good that the EPO set up such meeting when we have focus on a, a specific item. But I also think that uh, from the members of EBI, very uh, happy with amending the adapting description to remove inconsistencies, but not to remove uh, examples or anything else, even if it's not within the claims. As you just said, Annette, I would agree that Everybody likes to remove the inconsistent or contradicting statements when when you have something in the description which says optionally you have this or that feature and the claim says you must have that feature. Well, of course, that is something that needs to be amended. But for everything else, for example, the the most contentious claim-like clauses. Yes, I agree on that. Also within FICP, I'm very active also in FICP. Uh, we have much uh, discussion about amendments and uh, we see that uh, obvious statements with respect to uh, features we are optional and are later on in the claims after amendment, the granted claims are uh, indicated as essential. Well, that is something uh, clearly that might be amended. But the thing is, at the end, amendment of the description, it ha- can have a use effect on the scope of protection. And this is dealt by national courts. And uh, we have many discussions within FICP that we see that national courts analyze this in a different manner. And for some countries, it might be beneficial to amend the description. And for other countries, it will not be beneficial to amend the description. How's your view on that? I have hopes that the UPC will align the interpretation here some to some extent, hopefully to a very large extent. Currently, for example, I see that equivalents are treated completely different in Germany and Switzerland, for example. In, in Germany, everything that is 
not in the description can be an equivalent. When it's in the description, it can't be any longer an equivalent. In Switzerland, it's the other way around. So I really hope that the UPC will bring a benefit in this respect. I think that as it is now, it put a heavy burden on the patent attorney because now we shall decide what to delete and what not to delete. And with all the consequences that it may have in one country, uh, one way and in another country, another way, I think that this is, this is a very heavy burden. It will cost a lot of money. And I think that the value of it uh, to having maybe the description more like the, the claim, I think that this is not worth it. And I, I really hope that they will change it as in the UPC, as you say, Heike. And, and let's also not forget that claim scope is not the only thing that changes when you change the description. You could also run into another Article 123 trap just by deleting stuff may change the meaning of some uh, words in the claims. And there is ample case law on that. So I can fully understand why people are hesitant to delete things from the description. No, and definitely, for example, in the Netherlands, we have an far repo estoppel. So every amendment made in the application can be used to interpret the scope of the claims. Uh, so we are very often reluctant to amend the description only for that. I agree with Heiko that probably the UPC will give us more guidance what will be the preferred approach because it will probably harmonize all the national case law over the next couple of years. So that will be very interesting development coming up. I think that the, the, the issue of claim-like clauses have an additional problem uh, because what is a claim-like clause? The, in the guideline it says, well, it's clauses that looks like claim, but without saying claim. But what if you add some periods or change the wording a little, or call it embodiment or something else? Would it then still be claim-like clauses? You, you know, the European patent attorneys, they will get creative uh, when they're faced with this uh, bar that they should delete the claim-like clauses. Uh, so this would be a really gray area uh, and uh, give a, a lot of burden and again, add to cost to the clients, to the applicants. Yes, and, and now the guidelines indicate that uh, if you have claim-like clauses, it should be amended and added to the description. But many times we call the clauses refer back to each other in a specific way. It is not possible. Or if you have to write it out, everything, you end up with a 100 pages uh, description in order to make all the different combinations. So either the applicant will face a possible problem with respect to added matter, so the 123.2 EPC objection, or he has to, well, get rid of specific subject matter in order to avoid added subject matter problems. So I fully agree that the claim like crosses will be a challenge for now in the future. And I understand that the EPO for some time said that they probably have the divisional applications in mind in which the original claims of the mother application is added to the description and a new set of claims is filed and used during examination. But we have to keep in mind that also, for example, in uh, many Asian countries, applications are drafted from the start with claim-like clauses at the end of the description. For these applicants, it's very difficult to enter Europe if they have to remove all these claim-like clauses because they're actually part of the description. I have heard about applications where the description consisted 
of clay-like clothes. And that was what they were. So, <laughs> so if you have to delete them, then there's nothing left. Yeah, but we, we shouldn't forget that this is also an issue that is still in progress. Are there any further uh, discussions during the SACAPO meeting which you would like to mention, Annette? I think that um, the EPO is uh, trying to do a very good job and we have several times asked them to uh, make it allowable to use color drawings. And uh, the EPO have really listened to that and they are doing what they can to uh, make it possible to have color drawings. The only problem there is now is that there's some technical solution that needs to be solved. So uh, we can expect that it will very shortly be possible to have color drawings and also to use color drawings. Heiko, you have more chemical background. How's that for you uh, in your practice? Would it be helpful? Well, in the chemical field, it's not that much pressing uh, because basically anything is just a white powder. <laughs> But uh, in the field of biotechnology, when you have microscopy photographies, you definitely need that because if you do a scan of a color photograph and you, and you can't avoid it to be colored, then you only have a gray blob where you can't see anything. So not having color drawings actually excludes some means of proving that your invention really works. I've seen a case where something was expressed on the surface of leaves, plant leaves. So you could see the colored patches, but of course it was blue against green. So when you made a, when you made a, a scan of that, it was just a gray leaf. Yeah, well, where's the invention? So I'm really looking forward to have colored drawings and photographies in the description later. And one of the other issues uh, I remember we uh, were discussing about is uh, changes uh, posed by the examiner. What do you think about that, Annette? Well, this is a, a topic that we have discussed with the EPO many times, and, and they are, I think they're a little tired. Uh, <laughs> every, every time we take it up, they, they get a little tired of that, yes. And the problem is uh, that it's also standing in the guideline that If you are not, do not agree with the amendment that an examiner has made, you have to give reason for changing back. But the examiner does not have to give any reason when he dispatches the intention to grant uh, and say this is a text that we intending to grant, uh, and then he have all his changes. But if we would like to go back to the version before or have some of the changes uh, changed back, then we have to give reason why. And I don't think that it should be that way. I think that the examiner should either not do these uh, changes or he should call the uh, applicant before he is uh, making any changes. And I think that it will be even worse now because one of the points is that the examiner is allowed to make changes to adapt the description to the claims. So if he starts to remove uh, examples uh, because he thinks they are not according to the claim, I think that that would be disastrous and we will have a heavy burden to to have this changed back again. And I have also seen examiner making a changement that we would very much like that change that he made but there was no basis for it. So, so and, and we would not be happy to state in written form that there was not basis for this change. I completely agree to that because nobody wants to have it in the file saying like, this amendment clearly creates a 123 problem, open bracket, dear opponent, please pick on this issue, close bracket. <laughs> But normally the examiners ten tended to be quite nice in the past. But with the now very heavy-handed 
kind of uh, section in the guidelines, I fear that the examiners will be pressed or feel compelled to apply more far-ranging amendments to the description contrary to what the applicant wants. And it creates a burden for us to defend against things that we never wanted to have. I think that's that's very strange because the examiner does not have to provide any reason for, for any other objection that the examiner raises. He has to provide a reason statement backed by verifiable facts. But here, the examiner just amends and you have to defend yourself. I fully agree with you both. And Heiko, you mentioned that uh, discussions like these can be used against you uh, during opposition procedure. Well, keep in mind in uh, the Netherlands, as I mentioned, we have a far rapper estoppel. So also in the national courts, it can be used against you. And it's, yeah, sometimes uh, examiners raise discussions which you really want to avoid because you don't want to have uh, uh, anything uh, said about uh, specific issues. because, yeah, that it can be relating a delicate part of the patent application. I would agree that it would be best if examiners call the applicants before they do the amendments. In my experience, when I get an, a call by an examiner, most of the issues can be sorted out extremely efficiently. And you don't need a 73 notice and then file again uh, objections against that and file an amended description on your own and, and get the ball going uh, like ping pong. Just just call. People normally are friendly. Yes, definitely. I, I shared that experience with you, uh, Heiko, and I also did it the other way around. I received the 713 communication and there were examiner amendments. And instead of disapproving the text and filing a new text and, and arguing why specific amendments uh, uh, should be made, I just called the examiner, explained the situation, and then uh, he agreed on that we could just file an amended text uh, without any arguments that had been filed. So that is at least a, a different approach uh, or another approach which can be used. How's your experience on that, Annette? Well, I, I think uh, that it's very important to be in personally contact. One thing I think that is important to consider is that the examiners, uh, they don't know the client. They don't know what is important to the client. Uh, so so therefore, they may, even if they do it in, in with, with a good purpose and they're just trying to help, uh, they may make disastrous changes. Uh, and, and I think that it's important that they understand that. So you can see we have many topics to discuss uh, and we discuss many topics during our meetings at the Sakepo and we just love to do that. Uh, what do you think would be the next thing to change in a future edition of the guidelines, Heiko? Well, there's, of course, the elephant in the room of um, video conferences. We've had G1 of 21, which deliberately limited uh, itself to video conferences in appeal proceedings. But I mean, the enlarged board said that the gold standard for oral proceedings was oral proceedings held in person. And I struggled to understand why that would not also apply to oral proceedings held at the examining division, opposition division, even at the receiving section, if if such a thing would ever happen. I would hope that this issue is treated in the next guidelines, but I also hope that this issue gets less contentious over time when applicants acquire a taste for uh, video conferences. Let's be honest here, not having to travel really 
is a big incentive to have to have a video conference. So I would expect that if the parties agree to have a video conference, then it should be a video conference. But if the party insists on having a conversation in person, that should be perfectly fine and it should not be a burden on that party to provide compelling reasons for that. I mean, it would be for the other party to say, no, we don't need that and here are the reasons for it. But as long as one party has a case that the representative feels more free to make his case in personal proceedings, I think that's completely fair and should be respected. Yeah, I think that's a problem with specifically be with mixed or proceedings where one party is is in person and the other party is there by WICO. Will any one of them have a better position that it's very important to have this small talk also with the board of the opposition division, you say hello and things like that. I, th I think you get familiar with them just with this small sentence that you say when you're leaving the table and arriving to the table again. If the other party would be there in person, I would be there too. <laughs> But otherwise, I think that all proceeding by WICO is a good alternative and it's less costly for the applicant or the patentee. I fully agree with you. Ah, you hear that? They're ringing the bell on us, calling lost orders. So it's time to wrap up. I think we did an all right job for the current guidelines, but it's a never-ending story. So many new developments. If you have ideas for what can be changed in the next edition of the guidelines, then make your views known via the EPO's online consultation before mid-April. Thanks to you all out there for listening, and the EPO regularly publishes fresh podcasts on new technologies, studies on the economic impacts of patents, as well as advice for innovators. So listen out for more podcasts soon. But for today, from Annette, Heiko and myself, it's Subscribe to the European Patent Office's podcast channel, Talk Innovation at epo.org, or on your favorite podcast platform. Let's talk innovation.